c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tory, I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict. Welcome back to Histories and Mysteries. I'm Jessica. And I'm a heavily medicated version of Janelle. Today, we're talking about neighbors. Kind, friendly neighbors. Good neighbors. Neighbors with the longest, safest, most peaceful border in the world. Neighbors who always get along, so long as you carefully ignore the first 70% of their history, when they live side by side with the ever-present possibility of war. (laughs) <laughs> As you may have guessed, I'm of course speaking about the relationship between Canada and the United States. <laughs> I don't know, I feel like that is the exact speech that you would give if you brought cookies to a new neighbor at your apartment complex. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they know who I am. Although they brought me cookies, which is weird. <laughs> Peace offerings. <laughs> they could sense you through the walls and were like, oh yeah, we, we gotta placate this one. They were gluten-free, so they live another day. <laughs> if, they'd, if they'd been full of gluten, I would have given them a week. <laughs> I love me some gluten. My mother developed celiac disease, like, very late in life, like, in her 50s, which just feels unfair. And, uh, and yeah, through that through that whole learning experience, I have learned that my favorite food is gluten. It's, it's the only thing I truly enjoy. I feel like developing a gluten intolerance... Or, like, any, like, major food allergy is a lot like becoming blind as an adult as opposed to being born blind. I feel like it's easier if you never get to know what you missed. Right, there should be, like, a a finish line where it's like, okay, you've come this far without developing any food allergies. Like, you're good. This is the cutoff. Like, you're safe. Possibly the worst thing that could ever happen to me at this point in my life is developing a sudden lactose intolerance. Uh, Because I conservatively go through half a gallon of milk a day. (laughs) <laughs> and <laughs> that is not including butter. That is not including cheese. That is not including any of the other assorted dairy products that I enjoy. I I think they should honestly just dedicate a cow to me. <laughs> I was going to say, I've never been to a party with you where you did not show up with a four liter jug of milk just for yourself. I just felt that people would be uncomfortable if I wasn't drinking. And if they're going to drink poison, I'm going to drink an ungodly amount of lactase. (laughs) I want to test the bounds of my European ancestry. (laughs) I feel like your body's going to cut you off, like, enough. But, like, if I became lactose intolerant now, I would shit myself to death by next week. (laughs) I would be dehydrated. I would be crying on a toilet and still chowing down cheddar. (laughs) That just feels like a description of what you do on Sundays. Just (sighs) it's the Lord's Day, you and we all celebrate in our own way. (laughs) This feels like why there is a border between Canada and the U.S. (laughs) They just keep me for all the cheap cheese. Yeah, it's to keep all of the French Canadians out and away from their delicious American cheese. It's also to keep the French Canadians safe from American spray cheese. Like, this goes two ways. Ugh. My my fiancé is from France, like, born and raised, lived in France, like, immigrated to the U.S. as an adult. And, like, the concept of, like, he's been in the U.S. now for probably six or seven years, and he is still getting his head around, like, shelf-stable spray cheese. Like, that's- he loves everything about U.S. culture. He loves- burgers he loves portion sizes he will order dunkin donuts so he can laugh at the bucket of coffee they give you he loves all of it he thinks it's fantastic his first like week in the united states my my mediterranean south of france fiance went to a leonard skinner concert in florida just to experience america (laughs) having a grand old cultural experience he wanted he wanted the most american thing that he could do I think he found it. He watched Napoleon Dynamite 80 times in a row before moving to the U.S. just to learn their ways. He loves it. But <laughs> he draws the line at craft singles and shelf-stable spray cheese. That's that's the one thing where he's like... That is a fair line. That no. That is a fair line. <laughs> but uh, in particular, we are going to be discussing the two then-secret military plans created in the early 20th century. The first, defense scheme number one, 
a plan drafted by the Canadian military in 1921 to invade the United States. And conversely, the second, War Plan Red, approved by the American military in 1930, a plan to invade Canada. And we know from history that neither of these plans was ever enacted, but they are a fascinating glimpse into the recent past where this kind of inter-American ground war was not only possible, but plausible. <laughs> Damn it, we almost had worse cheese in the exact same television shows. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, Canada and the United States have a history of conflict that predates their even being a Canada or United States. Strictly <laughs> speaking, for most of that history, Canada primarily acted and was feared as an extension of the British Empire. This being one of the few American conflicts where they could be comfortably called the underdogs. One of the first major military initiatives, in fact, the first major military initiative, by the nascent Continental Army was the 1775 invasion of Quebec. As a historical note, Canada is basically just the lower part of Quebec at this point. The goal was primarily to block the use of Canada as a staging ground for British attack. And indeed, some experts have suggested this push up into Quebec may have delayed a full-scale British counteroffense until 1777. But the invasion was otherwise disastrous. <laughs> this was in part due to poor organization, poor luck, and the inherently unbalanced odds. Benedict Arnold, one of the invasion's leaders, led his 1,100 troops up the Kennebec River in leaky boats that caused supplies to spoil, portage through swamps and wilderness, had hundreds of men turned back due to low supplies and difficult terrain, and arrived in Quebec in late October with 600 half-starved and inexperienced soldiers. Invading Canada kind of has the same, like, don't invade Russia in winter. Like, just don't, yeah. don't invade Do Canada <laughs> in winter. Do not. <laughs> Without proper supplies. Like, the flies will get you before we do. <laughs> your army's going to show up frozen, starving, not the right footwear, not enough hats, frostbite, all these, you know, exposure-related injuries. Shock itch, frostbite. All of it. Rabies, and you're just- Probably. You're just going to meet some dude, like, in shorts and flip-flops in January who's like, hey there, bud. Like, that's... <laughs> you, need a, you need a boost? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was so bad, they ate a dog. Ooh. They ate Captain Henry Dearborn's dog, which I won't discuss further because I have discussed dog murder and consumption enough on this podcast to comfortably last <laughs> everyone several lifetimes, by which I mean thrice. Uh, it's a lot of this podcast we've talked about people going on like journeys in the woods and having to eat things they didn't think they were gonna have to eat that's <laughs> did we do the donner party i can't even remember at this point <laughs> we have not touched on the donner party no we did australia we did australian cannibalism we did yes we did that guy from tasmania who ate right. all the other escapees that's right uh, we, we also did yeah, the franklin expedition where again people got eaten um, we've had a lot of cannibalism, I will say, and it's mostly my fault. Not entirely. I'll, I'll, there's more than enough blame to go around. But, uh, yeah, a lot of that, it's on me. Oh, I did the French sisters that ate their employer, so, you know. I've, well, I've, they cooked her. I don't know if they ate her. That's true. They just basted her in menstrual blood. This is a gross podcast. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I just realized we're disgusting. The moral of this podcast is largely do not go into the woods without enough food. Um, if you if you learn mm. nothing else from listening to our back catalog, let that be and, the lesson to you. And French cooking is not always as classy as you think. <laughs> don't eat a dog in the woods of Quebec. I don't know. <laughs> like... uh, but beyond the Three Stooges antics of proto-Americans underestimating the sheer lethality of the Canadian wilderness, the failure of the Quebec invasion was also due to the rather unfound notion that French Canadians would greet them as liberators. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be a problem. French-Canadian leadership had already rebuffed several overtures from heads of the revolution, and from the Franco-Canadian perspective, it was better the Anglo-devil you know than expansionist Puritans. The Quebecois are hesitant to even greet you as tourists. They certainly don't view anyone as liberators. <laughs> <laughs> they were not a fan of the idea of becoming the 51st state. Or the 14th at the time. Yeah, no, they they barely want to be the 10th province of Canada. <laughs> like, 
They barely consent to associating with us. Never mind you. <laughs> Britain had only controlled Quebec for 16 years at this point, but they had recently formally ended attempts to assimilate the French-speaking population with the 7074 Quebec Act which removed references to the Anglican Church and the loyalty oath to the British monarch required to be a public servant, granted Quebec the right to retain their own civil legal code based on that of France, permitted the collection of tithes by the Catholic Church, and increased the province's territory. <laughs> Do you know how annoying you have to be to make the British agree to let you be French in the 18th century? <laughs> They lost a war, too. Like, Quebec fully lost a war they with the Anglo lost. side of Canada. And they were still like, fine, you get to have a huge amount of land where you can do whatever you want. Just please leave us the fuck alone. <laughs> Go speak French with your chain-smoking six-year-old. I don't care. <laughs> the First Continental Congress actually cited the Quebec Act as one of the intolerable acts that formed the part of the initial rationale for American independence. Oh, uh, yeah. It, not just tea. Not just stamps. Literally the Quebec Act. And that's not only because it granted Quebec large portions of the Ohio country, which Americans wanted for its fertile farmland, but also because it recognized Catholicism and French law. <laughs> interesting. This is an interesting thing. If you ever enter a sweepstake in Canada, it will always say valid anywhere except in Quebec. Yeah, every offer. This offer available only in, like, not Quebec. Otherwise, they would have to deal with an entirely different legal system, which is written in French. <laughs> oh, I know. My grandmother died in Quebec in 2011, um, and we are still have not settled her estate because their laws are different. She was a resident of New Brunswick, but died in Quebec. Try not to do that. <laughs> mm, not a good idea. No, not great. Bad move. <laughs> <laughs> Try to die outside of Quebec or live your whole life in Quebec. Just pick one of the two. <laughs> like, if you're in Gatineau and you feel your heart going, make a run for it. Sprint Get for... to Ottawa as fast as you can. <laughs> <laughs> if you're on the gas base, spin, swim to New Brunswick. <laughs> uh, but Britain didn't do this purely of charity. The reality was that in the decade of ha half since conquering Quebec, English-speaking subjects had shown very little interest in immigrating to Canada regardless of any encouragement, and the province was still overwhelmingly francophone. You can't assimilate a population of 70,000 into a group less than a tenth the size, in the same way that if you try to incorporate five dozen eggs into an ounce of flour and sugar, the re end result will be more similar to scrambled eggs than pancake batter. <laughs> also, I feel like even at the most ideal times... Do you want to move to Quebec in the wintertime? It's, it's a hard sell. It's a hard sell to this day. Montreal is very nice, but... <laughs> it's lovely. But, oh, it's a wet cold. <laughs> <laughs> Feel it in your bones, you do. You don't get to be a world-spanning empire without being at least somewhat pragmatic, and so the British officials on the ground in Quebec had generally held back on pushing the head office's assimilationist policy, in many ways, the 7074 Quebec Act was simply an official recognition of that necessary compromise in policy. Uh, the Quebec Act was wildly popular among French Canadians, and prominent political figures and writers in the 13 colonies, especially those who sided with the Fr American Revolution, were vocally hostile to its most critical elements. Likewise, French Canadians didn't much like the idea of sharing a political unit with the southern colonies. Again, the population of Quebec was only 70,000 in 1775, compared to a population of 2.4 million down south. They'd be less than 3% of the population of a truly united North American nation, sharing political space with an overwhelming number of Protestants, Puritans, and Anglicans. <laughs> I have to say that if, like, the U.S. tried to invade us tomorrow, it would be Quebec that stops them, and it would be for the exact same reasons. <laughs> Nothing has changed. 1775, when Gen General Richard Montgomery managed to capture Montreal with little resistance, and several locals even tended to Arnold's men out of charity, that upswell of French-Canadian resistance against the British never appeared. They tried attacking Quebec during a late December snowstorm. Montgomery was killed, Ooh. Arnold injured, and the men were forced to retreat, <laughs> beset by smallpox. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, again, bad idea, bad idea. <laughs> 
Meanwhile, in Montreal, the Americans made themselves generally odious, mostly by paying with paper money rather than coins and racking up high debts, but also by arresting British loyalists and attempting to disarm local militias. <laughs> now, if you don't mind, I'm going to yada 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 the rest of the American Revolution, because I'm sure you get the picture. <laughs> I mean, I know who won. That's the gist of it. I've been to Boston. Been I've seen this. them. I've seen people in costumes throw fake tea in a harbor. They got I get a bill. It. Stamps, taxes, shot heard around the world, the horse ride. Betty Ross. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> we'll just fast forward on this. Whatever. <laughs> During peace negotiations, the Americans actually asked Britain to cede all of British North America, including Quebec, but settled Ooh. for a large chunk of the Ohio country, seeing as that was what they really wanted anyway. Meanwhile, many Americans who preferred to remain British settled permanently in Canadian territory. But if you're sad that we're skipping over the majority of the American Revolution, worry not, because the War of 1812 was largely just a sequel. Lower budget, less important, but with the same basic conflicts and themes, including largely being led by a bunch of old revolutionary military leaders, now old men in search of a return to faded glory, in charge of a bunch of naive new troops with minimal formal training. <laughs> because the United States had only a small standing army of around 12,000, which was expanded to 35,000 for the sake of the war. <laughs> also, we just, like, shit on Quebec a whole bunch, but, like, imagine trading Ohio for Quebec and thinking you got a good deal on that one. <laughs> right? Ooh. They have so much mineral wealth. <laughs> <laughs> so they're like, mm, Quebec is, like, much of Canada's mining wealth. It has much of the world's mining wealth. Like, mm, you did a bad deal. You got, you got mm, corn instead trade. of zinc. I don't know. I don't think you did a good one there. I, I'm, I don't know a lot about Columbus, but Montreal is an international city. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that was a bad, that was a bad trade. Uh, militiamen, while at least familiar with the correct way to point a weapon, were at best undisciplined, and many were reluctant to fight outside of their home state, never mind crossing over to Canada. This is precisely what happened to General Henry Dearborn, who apparently learned nothing from the loss of his dog, uh, when he tried to push past Lake Champlain, only for the militia he led to simply refuse to cross the border. Yeah. <laughs> Not doing that shit again. No. They refused to fight on anything but domestic soil. The war began in a typical border skirmish when the HMS Leopard set upon the USS Chesapeake in search of British-born sailors to impress into the British Navy. The brave Americans manfully surrendered after a single volley, which was, of course, embarrassing. This incident holds the rather dubious honor of being the 9-11 of 1812, in the Oof. sense that it, too, sucked the Americans into a poorly considered ground war in a foreign land with strange languages and a hostile geography, where they assumed they'd be greeted as liberators. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> Oof. We never learn. <laughs> oh, that's... The, mm, I'm gonna be chewing on that metaphor for a couple of weeks. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> I'm autistic, I see patterns. <laughs> oh, it has layers. It has layers. <laughs> <laughs> a large part of the reason why Americans launched a war over a relatively petty incident is because they felt vulnerable to abuse by the British, which was both their primary antagonist and their largest trading partner, and they wanted to assert their right to the waters along the American coast, which were essential to their continued economic and political independence from Britain. Uh, around 15,000 Americans had been impressed by the British at this time, a problem exacerbated by the American reluctance to distribute naturalization papers confirming their status as American hmm. in a time when nearly every American over a certain age had been British at one point. <laughs> there was also, however, a certain measure of opportunism. Britain was currently tied up in Europe with a cheeky French fella named Napoleon, and, well, they figured that the population of Canada would put up little resistance as three-quarters were still French Catholic, and the remaining English-speaking quarter was a majority first- or second-generation American in origin. However, if you were paying attention to literally several paragraphs ago, you'll remember those American-born Canadians are fucking loyalists who yeah. hadn't really changed their mind only 20 years later. Yeah, they fled for a reason. <laughs> They literally left the country in order to not be American. If you like being British so much that you're willing to immigrate to Northern Ontario over it, you're you're pretty much in it for life. 
likewise, the American war effort was disorganized, undersupplied, and frankly unpopular, especially North and New England, which had important trade interests in peace with Canada. The army needed a ton of volunteers, but didn't pay well, reducing volunteer numbers and quality. That and most American officers were either entirely green or quite elderly. Henry Dearborn was known to his troops as Granny. <laughs> oh, good. It's just 18-year-olds and octogenarians. Let's do this. <laughs> uh, the Canadian invasion was a farcical failure, even before the 1814 defeat of Napoleon, which freed Britain's attention to fully focus on their interests in North America. The British quickly took Maine, which they held for the rest of the conflict. The majority of Mainers quickly took to resuming trade with Canada, and thereby supplying the British war effort. <laughs> the British then infamously marched down from Canada to Washington, D.C. in August 1814, straight into the White House, where they reportedly ate James Madison's dinner while it was still warm on the table, presumably <laughs> dipped their balls in the soup, then definitely burnt it down, as well as the Treasury, the War Department, and the Capitol Building, which housed Congress, the Library of Congress, the and, the and the Supreme Court thereby forcing Congress to meet <laughs> in the patent office. <laughs> I feel like our our majority American podcast listeners should know that, like, we hear this story a lot growing up. This is like our Paul Revere's ride. We hear this one. I'm pretty proud of this one. <laughs> this, this was our glowing moment. You have to understand. Yeah. We don't want a rematch for obvious reasons, but yeah. this was fun for us. Yeah, this was, it's not a fair fight now. Please don't. But um... <laughs> <laughs> We're going to remember back when you were 10 years old and we could bully you. <laughs> I mean, in fairness, in every like international war that Canada becomes part of, we quickly get a reputation for being unhinged. That's like a pretty consistent thing that just nobody wants to deal with the Canadians because... <laughs> Do not look up Canadian war crimes in World War One. Yeah, it's not great. No. <laughs> like, something like a tenth of the Canadian population went to war in World War One, and like, oh, yeah. We good. were psychos. <laughs> Canada has also notably, like, not had to draft people as much as the U.S. because, like, we're in it. In it to win it. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> Woo! When the Americans were going like, I don't know if we should get into a war overseas we were sharpening pitchforks we were so fucking ready for blood world war ii 1939 we we're in there i mean we had no choice british we said were ready coming. to bite someone's ear off we, we were, were down. world war ii they pointed us at italy and said don't tell us what happens like, <laughs> like we get we get a lot of credit for not being americans but, oh boy, we don't deserve it. <laughs> no, no, we don't. Never start a war with the Canadians, even though it's now not a fair fight, even though we're now quite a small country by population on the world stage. I don't know. Probably still not a great idea, to be honest. <laughs> we'll do something really fucked up. You'll win, just... but at what cost? <laughs> we're all just a bunch of Catholics raised on a diet of gravy. Like, you should not mess with us. <laughs> we're not okay. <laughs> We're not fine. We get weird in the winter. <laughs> uh, incidentally, I do want to express some sympathy for James Madison. He was kind of left holding the bag, but the war was actually started by Thomas Jefferson, who is best known for the Declaration of Independence and having at least six children with a slave. Oh, uh, that one's not great. Nope. No. Oops. Uh, he also popularized mac and cheese. Oh, what a mixed legacy. <laughs> it's a lot, isn't it? Wow. Uh, but uh, yeah, peace was formalized by early 1815. <laughs> My favorite, like, War of 1812 is that, like, a large... One of many of the U.S.'s, like, American invasion attempts was, like, more or less thwarted by a woman named Laura Secord overhearing them, and then, like, the U.S. were uh, just yeah, bragging... Yes, they were just bra bragging about their plans in the open, and then some lady overheard them and told somebody. I don't know the full story, but then we put her on chocolate forever. So. She's our Paul Revere. We're really, really into the War of 1812 in Canada. Cannot overstate you that enough. You have no idea. We love it. We love it. We didn't we're have- We're really weird about it. <laughs> we didn't have a revolution. In like 19 the 1980s, we were like, may we have our own constitution, please, Mother Britain? And she was like, I guess. Sure. <laughs> 
uh, with the end of the or- War of 1812, we conclude the two sole instances of open, outright war between our two nations. Because as much as Canadians might like to gloat about the conclusion of the war and taking a dump on Dolly Madison's best china, like a bully who once <laughs> pummeled a six-year-old Vitaly Klitschko, we're not re- really looking for that rematch. No, you have drones now. <laughs> uh, which is not to say that they weren't there weren't further incidents that may have sparked war had cooler heads not prevailed. Although hmm. the most notable examples were oddly pig themed. <laughs> oh, we do love that one too. Yeah, although these include the Aristook War, otherwise known as the Pork and Beans War which was in no way an actual war and involved no direct combat between troops on either side, but did include uh, 38 non- non-combat fatalities, primarily through disease, two lumberjacks <laughs> who were mauled by a black bear, and consequently, one dead black bear. <laughs> war casualties, black bear. <laughs> Love that. Yeah, we, we just don't have that much of an interesting history of war other than like our involvement in international conflict. Because nobody has wanted Canada that bad. It's cold and large and small. I don't know. <laughs> like, our main defense is our weather and the fact that if you invade us, you have to live here. Like, I don't know. <laughs> we have oil, but at what cost? <laughs> right? You gotta be sure. <laughs> Do you really want to live in Edmonton? Oof. Do ya? Punk. You get to experience what it's like to have continuous snow from September to the end of May, and also it costs $8 for a jug of milk. Choose wisely. (laughs) Uh, The dispute started with lumberjacks from Maine and New Brunswick competing over the lumber forests along their shared border. The New Brunswick lumberjacks, while technically British citizens, didn't honestly consider themselves beholden to Britain in theory or practice, and thus didn't particularly care what land Britain or America said was theirs. Never mind that the two countries had been beefing about this particular border hotly for nearly a decade. (laughs) In fairness, the French people in New Brunswick are Acadian and we have our own reasons for distrusting the British. Do not deport people to Louisiana and then expect them to like you. It's basic rule of etiquette. (laughs) Yeah, honestly, just a little rude. Uh, in, In this particular economic competition, lumberjacks on both sides started wearing weapons to defend themselves. These Hmm. tensions culminated in an incident of shots fired on the last day of 1838. Militiamen and American lumberjacks had been called in to guard an American estate where New Brunswick lumberjacks had been spotted felling trees on December 29th. On New Year's, they were again spotted and asked to leave. Both nations' lumberjacks had drawn weapons and tensions were high. When a nearby group of three Canadian lumberjacks was set upon by a mother black bear, who, given the time of year, should have been deep in hibernation... When they managed to kill the bear, two were injured, and the shots convinced the Americans that they were under attack. They fired on the Canadians, injuring none but forcing them to retreat. (laughs) This is the dumbest of all possible international conflicts. And also, again, one that could realistically happen tomorrow. Uh, in response to this incident, the Maine legislature sent a, sent a land agent with a posse of volunteer militiamen to the disputed area with instructions to capture and confiscate the logging equipment of any New Brunswicker in the area and send the loggers themselves back to Maine to face trial. The New Brunswick loggers, in response, broke into an armory and took the land agent and his militiamen prisoner in the middle of the night. As one does, just a reasonable reaction. Casual. Just a casual kidnapping. In fairness, that is usually Canada's response when we're upset. This might not seem like much, but these incidents snowballed into the mobilization of thousands of troops and was only halted when the American federal government and Britain stepped in. Uh, Next was the 1859 Pig War, or the San Juan Boundary Dispute, if you'd like to maintain a shred of dignity. The 1812 peace agreement had set most of America and Canada's modern borders, but it had accidentally included small areas of ambiguity. Similar to the Pork and Beans War, the Pig War was an area of long-term post-war tension due to one of these ambiguities. Incidentally, it's called the Pork and Beans War because that's what they like to eat, the lumberjacks. Huge fans. (laughs) I figure like I should explain that because there was no pigs involved there or any beans as far as I'm aware. I was going to say, where did you find beans in Canada? (laughs) Where, where's these lush bean fields? Tell us the location. 
Well, I mean, they're gonna be in Saskatchewan, because we use beans. We're actually one of the... Okay, stop sounding like a ghost here. And... <laughs> Cat, get out of here. They, they, they climb up my back, and then they look over my shoulders, because they want to see what I'm doing, but I'm like, you, mm, go away. Uh, <laughs> what was I talking about? So they were kidney beans in the prairie. Oh, right, kidney beans in the prairies. Yeah, we are, we're actually, though, I think one of the world's largest exporters of kidney beans... Not because we ourselves eat them, but we grow a lot of them because they're good for fixing nitrate into the soil, and that'll let we rotate them with wheat. Very strange. Yeah, weird, right? <laughs> hmm. One of the biggest producers of kidney beans. One of the biggest exporters, because we make more beans than we really want. Fascinating. Wheat. Because, you know, gotta have that gluten. <laughs> Whew. All right. Borders. Borders. Um, Borders. <laughs> uh, specifically, the marine border along no along British Columbia and Washington State. The U.S.-Canada border, for most of its length, runs along the 49th lateral parallel until the west coast, where it dips south through the strait between the mainland and Vancouver Island, which was a firmly British possession well before the 1818 Treaty, despite its lowest point falling well below the 49th parallel. However, there's actually a chain of similar, several smaller islands there known as the San Juan Islands, with, consequently, several different channels and two major straits through them, possession of which depends on one's interpretation of what through the strait meant. Hmm. The Haro Strait, favored by the U.S., would have included the maximum number of islands on the American side, while the Rosaria Strait, preferred by the British, would have included the maximum number on the British side. There's also like a little, I don't know if you, any of you are aware of Point Roberts, but it's just this little yes. nook of land sticking <laughs> out from the Briti British Columbian mainland. And you literally cannot get there by land except by passing through the Canadian border and then scooping over and coming back in the other side. Uh, it's such a small community that they actually have to row or, well, I don't think they have to row. They have to boat over to the mainland in America in order to go to school. <laughs> Point Roberts is definitely what you get when you just draw a line across a map to make two countries because it's in no way should that be US soil <laughs> it should just be British Columbian that would make so much more sense but it's not you, it was a common gathering point during uh, COVID for American and Canadian families that were separated because they could gather there for some reason because it's it's just this little spitz of land. Because they would <laughs> starve otherwise. We can't close the border. Yeah, that border can never shut because it would isolate their community. They have literally no way of accessing the U.S. mainland through by, yeah. by land. You can't drive to the U.S. from there. You have to go through Canada. It's like a peninsula that sticks down. It's super stupid. <laughs> uh, nonetheless, both Americans and British Columbians saw fit to live and work on the islands as if they were on home soil. In 1859, these included an Irish farmer with several free-roaming pigs. One of these pigs made the perilous mistake of rooting around in an American farmer's garden, at which point it was shot for trespass. The pig shooter offered the owner $10 as compensation, which is around 300 bucks. The pig owner demanded at least $100, which is around 3000 When British <laughs> authorities threatened to arrest the pig shooter, he called upon the American military for aid instead. <laughs> Again, thousands of soldiers were dispatched, though in far lesser numbers than the Pork and Beans War, possibly made up for by, by five battleships. It's a real accomplishment to make history as a pig. <laughs> <laughs> right. Again, the matter was settled when London and Washington got directly involved, the only casualty being the pig. Aww. During the American Civil War, Britain and consequently Canada were officially neutral and bought and sold goods, goods from both sides, including the battleship known as the CSS Alabama to the Confederates. The Alabama wrecked havoc during her two-year career, leading to widespread anti-British sentiment and calls for compensation, including one suggested by President Ulysses Grant that Britain might simply cede Canada as payment and the matter could thereby be considered settled. Uh, it bears noting that Canada wouldn't be incorporated into a single political unit rather than a random grab bag of colonies for another two years after the end of the Civil War, uh, which was called the Canadian Confederacy, which 
in hindsight, really sounds intentional in terms of phrasing. After this point, Britain begins to slowly lower its official troop presence in North America. Uh, though always with the promise that they would still come to Canada's aid should the Americans invade. Canada, specifically Anglo-Canadians, uh, still very much thought of themselves as British and volunteered in large numbers for British wars. When Britain requested 26,000 men from Canada in World War I, 33,000 came to their aid. In fact, <laughs> various Can Canadian troop-specific victories in Europe are often cited as key in fomenting a sort of nascent national self-awareness and pride, separate from being part of the empire. The United States had likewise come to Britain's aid, though with far less enthusiasm. Initially, that aid was purely economic, in the form of extravagant loans and supplies purchased on credit. It was all sort of a wink and a nudge arrangement to avoid being accused of taking sides rather than acting as a neutral party simply doing business. But of all the dastardly things, the Americans actually insisted on being paid back after the war was over to the tune of $22 billion, nearly matching Britain's GDP at the time, which was only $27 billion. This enormous bill formed one of the reasons why Britain herself was so insistent that Germany pay back those reparations in full. Despite their recent alliance, the matter of money led to a certain degree of bad feeling between the two countries. <laughs> Are we blaming the Americans for the eventual rise of Hitler? I'm into it. Is that fair? No, but I stand by it. The unfair reparations placed on Germany after World War I led to the economic collapse and the subsequent plunging into fascism. Just saying. Just saying. How many weapons can one country possibly buy on credit? <laughs> Was it worth it? Was it worth it, though? <laughs> this all brings us to Buster Brown, by which I mean James Sutherland Brown, known as Buster the descendant of British loyalists and the son of Canada's largest, uh, second largest egg exporter. He was likewise a combatant at Vimy Ridge or the Canadian Expeditionary Force. Upon his return home, he remained the much, with the much smaller permanent Canadian forces, quickly rising through the ranks of the Logistics Division, eventually reaching Brigadier General. Uh, but to be clear, I do not mean the more famous Buster Brown, who was a popular American comic strip character and later mas mascot of the Brown Shoe Company, Depicted as a nightmarish little blonde boy with a deeply unfortunate page boy haircut and pink sailor suit. <laughs> Different uh, one. <laughs> uh, and if you're asking, uh, would he have known about his nickname's connotation of an early 1900s Dennis the Menace with bangs? The answer is almost certainly. <laughs> the comic <laughs> ran for multiple decades and was adapted for film, theater, radio, and eventually television. Buster <laughs> Brown was played by an adult dwarf actor on Broadway, in addition to the Brown Shoe Company sending various dwarf actors on national tours to perform in theaters and department stores from 1904 until 1930. Uh, yeah, but uh, to be fair, the nickname Buster was quite popular at the time, in no small part due to the fame of Hollywood's Buster Keaton. Hmm, what a fun little connection. I can't help but feel that making a dwarf actor play a child is... It's, just get a child. Were none available? Did they all have black lung? Like, where? How do you. Could you not find a child? How do you have no children available, but you do have a little person? Like. <laughs> Multiple ones, like four. <laughs> How does that supply and demand ratio work? How do you find four dwarves before you think to find four reasonably smart children? <laughs> Are they all in the mines? Like, I don't understand. Now, Buster Brown was a patriot. He was, however, a Canadian patriot, which throughout our shared history has typically had a strong connotation of anti-American sentiment, which Brown shared. Hmm. Uh, he saw America as one of the biggest potential threats to Canada, which, in defense, it absolutely was and is. Uh, they're a large military power on our only meaningful land border and by far our largest trading partner, they're overwhelmingly unlikely to invade us, but they are also the party with the most opportunity and the most to gain by doing so. In the same way that when a person suddenly goes missing, suspect number one is always the spouse. <laughs> are we going to get Scott Petersoned by the U.S.? I don't like that. <laughs> I, I, admittedly, now that I've thought about it, now that it's in my head, it's a little weird. It's a weird a metaphor. Weird. It's a weird metaphor. 
There's like a, a decent amount of like the fringe right that still occasionally call to like invade Canada. And it's like at this point, why? It would be very, it would be a huge pain in the ass, if nothing else. <laughs> also, I do not know why right wing Americans would want us when even right wing Canadians would be left wing by their standards. <laughs> You, you're basically just asking for ten more Vermonts. Right? <laughs> <laughs> or just think of us as a very large Vermont. That's basically all we are. There's a little bit of Maine on one side, there's a little bit of Texas, but it's like Austin, Texas, you know? <laughs> right, you only get the tax breaks to film movies here because we're a separate country, so don't turn us into the U.S. You won't have any cheap television shows anymore filmed in Toronto slash the woods around my house. <laughs> right? You'll you'll have to film shows set in New York in New York because it'll cost the same to film them in Toronto. Yeah. It's not worth it. Don't every, do it. Every once in a while I take a walk in the woods and I look, hey, I think I saw a Stargate open there. <laughs> I saw Dean Winchester blow a, blow a werewolf's brains out right here. <laughs> Jessica's just like drinking milk in the woods at night and sees the cast of Riverdale and it's like I don't know which of these is weirder at this point <laughs> <laughs> Lieutenant Buster Brown was far from alone in his opinion and when he and his team surveyed the border its crossings and nearby communities in 1920 they did so on the orders of the chief of general staff many of Brown's reconnaissance notes were burnt by his direct successor oh. which is sad because they are fun uh, he described Vermonters as pleasant and almost quasi-Canadian, but also fat, lazy, and unattractive, which no. is a fun thing to include in a military intelligence report. That is harsh. Uh, yeah, he figured Vermonters might not welcome Canadians as liberators, but they'd certainly welcome us as libators, considering that most of Canada had a reappealed prohibition by 1920, and the northern states were heavy consumers of illicit cross-border booze. Was he asked to rate their attractiveness? Like, was that a box he had to fill out? <laughs> Honestly, if that was in his orders, something has gone wrong in the in the chain of command. <laughs> but it's even weirder if that was just unsolicited. Right? Like, they won't view us as liberators, but ugly. we can fuck them. And they're drunk. Oh, God. <laughs> and they're drunk <laughs> they're just fat ugly drunks who want our boots wow wow even by military yeah, standards mm, that's harsh. not flattering not flattering at all he's just like ranking the northern states by fuckability <laughs> <laughs> i wonder where south dakota ended up and also like a, a, compared to what type of canadian are we measuring fuckability is it like quebec lumberjack right. like is this like how fair is the assessment or is it just like standard border town nobody. <laughs> I, I feel like that changes the... Like, are we comparing them to Montreal? Or mm. are we comparing them to, like, I don't know, Battleford? <laughs> Kitchener? <laughs> nothing sexier than the people of Kitchener-Waterloo for some reason. I don't know. I don't know. I've been on Tinder in Kingston. It's rough. <laughs> <laughs> Like the shadow over Innsmouth, almost. I was going to say, you want a weird Tinder experience? Go to Kingston, Ontario. It is a town that has both the most PhDs, the most soldiers, and the most prisoners per capita of any town in Canada. <laughs> Makes for it's a weird experience. mix on Tinder. <laughs> it's like, just got out, you're like, of Queen's University? Or of Canada's maximum security prison? Or of the <laughs> army? Those are all options. <laughs> to be clear... When I say that Defense Scheme 1 was a plan to invade the United States, I do not mean that it was a plan to conquer the United States or even to hold any amount of U.S. territory for any period of time. It was a patently uneven matchup, taking on a nation with a population 12 times that of Canada's own, with a standing military force of 175,000 soldiers and a few million recent bloodied veterans that might just re-enlist given a conflict closer to home. Rather, the idea was that should a U.S. attack seem inevitable, either because they wanted war against the British or against Canada herself, then Canada would attack first, hard and fast like Brown had seen the Germans do in Europe. They would do as much damage as possible, then retreat to a more defensible position, a la Russia, destroying infrastructure behind them and harrying any American retaliation through guerrilla tactics. This would hopefully frustrate the enemy and waste his resources, all the while buying time for Britain to sweep in and save us. Or at least... For the U.S. to have second thoughts. 
Think of it like sucker punching the big guy bullying you at the bar, then crawling under a table and screaming at the bouncer for help. (laughs) Our tried and true military strategy. Uh, It's worked before. Come on. It'll work again. Uh, Britain didn't know about this plan, incidentally. Ah. And it's a big historical question mark as to whether they actually would have come to Canada's aid. They had absolutely no plan to, should worse come to worst. Britain viewed Canada as essentially a lost cause should the U.S. invade an acceptable loss. (laughs) Or just acceptable collateral damage. (laughs) They would have been like, listen, you got yourself into this. You gotta get yourself out. Uh, Can you imagine? Didn't even tell him. It's like when my chihuahua lunges at my parents' Newfoundland and then, like, (laughs) hides behind my ankles. Like, I'm not saving you. (laughs) You started this. You're a dog McNugget to her. Like, you... (laughs) I I can't defend you from a 140-pound dog. Like, you're on your own. (laughs) This, however, isn't the worst plan in the world and would have probably been the best chance that Canada would have should the U.S. decide to invade. Russia and winter. That's our best strategy. Strategically similar to how sparsely populated countries with rough terrain have held off much larger military powerhouses in the past, albeit with an added preemptive strike for dash of drama. (laughs) Uh, The U.S. population was tired of war. The U.S. Army had gone to Europe wildly unprepared and left most of the equipment they did have behind when they left. The proposed operation consisted of five major columns. The first, stationed in British Columbia along the west coast, would descend south along the border with aerial support into Washington State, Oregon, and Montana to take and hold Seattle, Spokane, Portland, and Butte. Hmm. Across the Rocky Mountains in the Great Plains, Prairie Command would descend on Great Falls, Montana, and Fargo, Minnesota, before marching on to Minneapolis and St. Paul. Sorry, St. Paul. I forget because my (laughs) father is from St. Paul, which is not as important. (laughs) (laughs) But it is very French. Much Frencher. The third column, based near the Great Lakes, would attack Niagara and Detroit, while a Quebecois force would would focus on Albany, New York. The fifth and final column out of the Maritimes had the primary goal of reclaiming Maine. (laughs) Okay, this is one we could realistically, like, probably still have not let go of. There's probably still a Canadian government plan to quietly retake Maine. We could- I think we could take Maine! I, think I don't think anyone on either side would care that much. <laughs> I don't think they'd notice. I think we'd take Maine. The Mainers would just go along with it. And then, like, like four years later, someone would ask why they hadn't voted in the, in the presidential election. <laughs> Listen, they're burly French people that eat lobster. They belong with us. <laughs> Listen, I think they probably already know the lyrics to most of our sea shanties. Let's just, why, why keep us apart? But the Canadian military is not the only one gifted with foresight and boundless imagination during peacetime. The U.S. military compiled numerous hypothetical color-coded defense plans throughout the interwar era, primarily intended as training scenarios. Some, however, did see real-world use, such as War Plan Orange, which outlined what to do given a solo fight between the United States and Japan, and War Plan Black, which included a scenario where France fell to Germany. The U.S. was blue, incidentally. And if you're wondering who yellow and brown were, which I bet you're not, uh, you could probably <laughs> guess. Actually, not so much on brown. Brown is what happens if there was an uprising in the Philippines. Oh. Yellow, though, you know, because it's China. Oh. <laughs> Their flag is red. Come on. <laughs> yeah, but red already meant Britain. Why? War- War- uh, I don't know. Because who was so silly it's the color red with Britain more so than China? <laughs> I mean... Back when, like, they were the redcoats and, like, they were, like, the most important thing in the United States world, I can't see where they'd be red. But mostly just because, like, the white and blue of their... Because this is the thing, like, every time the the Americans call their flag the red, white, and blue, it's like, you do know that's, like, half of people. Like, it's a really good (laughs) color combo. Almost everyone does it. (laughs) <laughs> we just had the world juniors here in Halifax. You don't realize how many countries have red, white, and blue flags until you watch an international hockey tournament and it's just people in red uniforms versus people in red uniforms. <laughs> Which one am I cheering for? I don't know. Yeah, not only that, you could also describe the Russian flag that way. That's true. Also, I think that being a military strategist would be incredibly fun. Not like in case of war, but in peacetime. 
where you get to just kind of sit around and playing like what if games where you're like, all right, today, um, what if Serbia allies with Kuwait and they invade North Dakota? Let's plan it out. <laughs> Peacetime, this is a great job. Unless any of it happens and you were wrong, then then I feel like they take you to a black site and kill you. But yeah. <laughs> but if that doesn't happen, fun stuff. War Plan Red, comp- composed between 1927 and 1930, speculated on the possible possibility of a conflict with the British Empire. Uh, Britain was obviously the Red, with each of its subsidiaries being known by a different shade of red, with the exception of the Free State of Ireland, which was then mm. an autonomous state within the British Empire, which was known as Emerald. Canada's code word was Crimson. Oh. Now... For some reason, War Plan Plan Red never anticipated a Leroy Jenkins-style first strike by the Dominion of Canada. They did, however, (laughs) expect to be at an initial disadvantage due to the power of the British Navy, and for Canada to once more act as the staging ground for any land-based assault. Uh, Somewhat uncharacteristically, the U.S. plan was, in fact, initially defensive assuming an, in, an attack on the U.S. merchant marine designed to maintain the British Empire's global position in the face of burgeoning American economic power. American planners then expected a Canada-based invasion through the Great Lakes region, hitting the industrial financial centers of the American Northwest, as well as Washington, D.C. Other strategic points would likely attract British attention included the Panama Canal and America's overseas colonies, including Puerto Rico and the Philippines. My sources do not call these islands colonies, but they definitely were colonies, so I'm calling them colonies. Hmm. <laughs> Puerto Rico is still a colony. <laughs> yeah, we have to figure that one out. You can call it an overseas territory all you like. <laughs> it's a colony. Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah, people who are like became part of your country <laughs> against their will. Mm. <laughs> who still are can't vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. It's a colony. Yeah. According to the War Office's analysis, the British could easily muster a force of 148,000 soldiers, as well as a large naval fleet out of the Halifax Harbor. The only reasonable response, therefore, was an immediate counter-invasion of Canada. The American plan was in many ways parallel to the Canadian one. On the west coast, a column based out of Bellingham, Washington, would attack Vancouver. From Grand Forks, North Dakota, further inland, they would march on Winnipeg. Buffalo, New York faction would hit the Canadian electrical grid at Niagara Falls, while another would leave Detroit to attack Toronto. An armored column from Vermont and Albany, New York would attack Montreal and Quebec City. Most importantly, naval forces out of Boston would blockade Halifax. I was going to say, I like that you and I both go down immediately in the invasion of Canada. I do think, though, that, A, Canada would not fight that hard to keep Winnipeg. I think we'd be like, oh, look at you. Here's your- take it. Take it. This is your punishment. Think about- keep Winnipeg and think about what you did. And I also think that there is no universe in which Detroit successfully overtakes Toronto. <laughs> I also like that, like, the U.S. understanding of Canadian geography is so poor that their invasion plan does not involve taking Ottawa. <laughs> In the event of a Canadian invasion, they take Winnipeg immediately, but they don't march on Ottawa. It's a good plan. I like it. (laughs) Uh, Not yet Nazi sympathizer Charles Lindbergh advised on the plan and helped scout out the coast of the Hudson Bay. The physical feature, not the company. Very much the Kanye West of his generation, Lindbergh recommended bombing Canadian industry and the use of chemical weapons. What? What the hell did we do? And if you're thinking, man, I can't believe that was even legal back then, I'm sorry to tell you that use of chemical weapons had been banned five years before with the 1925 Geneva Protocols. Like, how are we such a threat that they're like, you know what, we violate the Geneva Convention and we mustard gas them. Like, what the fuck did we do? (laughs) Were we planning on attacking you? Yes, but we didn't think we could win. And we weren't planning on- And we weren't planning on gassing you. (laughs) Right? It's like if a four-year-old kicked you in the ankle so you mustard gassed them. Like, that's... (laughs) It's overkill. It's not necessary. In the view of U.S. planners, Canada simply could not hold, and Britain would likely focus her attention on protecting Halifax, Montreal, and Quebec, as well as various logistical industrial assets, which would be the most important staging grounds for military operations. Still, an American victory and a Canadian annexation was all but inevitable. 
The large French Catholic population would be no problem at all. This dual language nonsense quickly dismantled, and with it, most of that pesky papal influence. It's gonna go right. Oh, yes. I just have this vision of the U.S. invading Canada, and then, like, Pope Francis defending us personally with a spear. <laughs> You know, like, the man in the high castle, how we always do, like, oh, what if the Nazis had won? I want an alternate history that is just, like, what if the U.S. actually invaded and took over Canada in the early 20th century and then were brought down from the inside by French-Canadian terrorists? (laughs) (laughs) I would watch that if that was a TV show. I would read that. I would... They would have absolutely assassinated Reagan. (laughs) Where Defense Scheme won was met largely with skepticism within the Canadian military. War Plan Red was taken extremely seriously, especially after a contentious 1927 disarmament talk between the U.S. and Britain, where the latter insisted on maintaining double the number of cruisers as the Americans. In 1935, Congress even allocated 57 million U.S. dollars for updating the plan which is over 1.2 billion in modern terms. That feels very late in history to be spending that much money worrying about an invasion of the Canadians. Obviously, that is a bit much just to revamp a few documents and run some drills, so the money was likewise used to build three military bases along the Canadian border disguised as civilian airports. Uh, They likewise organized large-scale war games with 36,500 soldiers at Fort Drum, which is, no joke, around a two-hour drive from Ottawa, according to Google Maps. Huh. I feel like that there's a point where, like, war games become an act of, act of aggression. Like, yeah, like, they become a threat. You know, yeah. you're like, okay, <laughs> always good to be prepared, but, like, I feel like if, you know, it's one thing for my spouse to have a hypothetical plan if I turn into a zombie, it's quite another to, like, walk in on him in the living room, like, practicing stabbing me in the event that I turn. Like, that feels <laughs> like, mm, That's different. That's a bit much. It's a lot. <laughs> You're taking this a little too far. You're a little bit too prepared for this eventuality. Uh, these air bases were supposed to be secret, but wound up accidentally getting leaked through a government printing office brochure that got picked up by the New York Times. So- oh, How do you Uh, leak anything that bad? This is a secret, and then it's in the New York Times. I looked. I could not find an explanation for this. Uh, War Plan Red was obviously never used, being quickly overshadowed by a little thing called World War II, but there genuinely was a time, less than a century ago, where the U.S. Army was putting serious money and resources into the idea of an inevitable ground war with Britain ending in the annexation of Canada. The plan was quietly declassified in 1974 and remained obscure until it was uncovered by a Canadian reporter, Robert Preston. (laughs) And then what do you do? It's like, oh, I'm a little hurt, guys. (laughs) You put a lot of thought into this. It's also unclear whether or not the American government continues to maintain a serious contingency plan to invade Canada. Pentagon leadership will neither confirm nor deny if that is the case. But it's actually (laughs) extremely likely. (laughs) Canada has enormous strategic resource wealth, particularly in terms of fossil fuels and fresh water. Oh, I'm pretty sure they've got, like, a date for when, like, they invade us for water. (laughs) That's that's probably actually, like, more of a, a, a Google meet at this point. That's in a Google calendar somewhere. (laughs) <laughs> there's definitely a plan to straight up annex us for water that's, that's absolutely the there is uh, <laughs> it is likely that Canada maintains a similar document for what to do should the US attacks but far less likely that it still includes a premeditated invasion of Maine <laughs> it probably just involves all of us like retreating to our buddy's house in the Canadian shield and writing this out We'll just let the Americans, like, walk around Thunder Bay and let them decide if this is still something they want. I like how this started off with us insulting the Americans and then we just roasted ourselves the entire time. <laughs> I just when- don't think it's worth losing lives in pursuit of owning New Brunswick. I, I don't think anyone should do that. Uh, but yeah, that has been Defense Scheme 1. Or uh, War Plan Red.
<laughs> it's fun. It's fun that like two of the most intertwined countries in the entire world just quietly have detailed plans to invade each other. And then anytime anyone asks about it, they're like, ha you so crazy. And then they change the subject. That's I fun. would That's- never. I would never. <laughs> so, Maine, how's it going? <laughs> they don't even deny it. They're just like, mm, can't tell you, but <laughs> how about that hockey? <laughs> like- <laughs> uh, Niagara Falls, am I right? Beautiful, picturesque. <laughs> That's a healthy thing to have between friends. Love it. I have been Jessica. And I've been Janelle. This is Histories and Mysteries. <laughs>